Ladies, let's sit down. General Lance is back at it again. Now, it's taken a little bit of time since my last transmission. Sergeant Barnes and I have been surveying the situation. Um, the world is kind of at a point of crisis, and I think it's important to just give some quick recap of the different events that have happened in the last month. I don't like constantly making transmissions to you guys if there's nothing to report on. Um, it's a waste of time, it's a waste of your time, but I like making my time valuable just like yours. And so I waited until there was like a slew of events so that I could report to you and maybe offer some thoughts as far as from a military leadership or military science perspective. So without further ado, let's talk about the Ukraine war as always. So there are a number of different things that have been happening recently. Um, I'm sure you saw that on Christmas Day, there was a huge missile strike. Um, roughly 50 to 70% of public infrastructure in the Ukraine has been uh, crippled or rendered non-reparable until there is some significant, um, you know, uh, I don't know, aid or construction effort. And at this time, when Ukraine is going through its eighth you know, manpower mobilization, mobilizing men over 60 years old to fight. Uh, the pool of men and, I guess, women, whatever, because they're even, they're even levying women as well, um, of, of skilled labor, etc., is being dried up. So, what's happening now, increasingly, is... The biggest news that has happened is the operational encirclement of Bakhmut. Now, prior to this, it was Solodar. Solodar, the this, this seizure of that village itself. Um, the purpose of that is a shaping operation. Again, a shaping operation is an operation or a series of attacks or you know actions which, quote-unquote, shape the main effort. The main effort being the capture of Bahmut. If you think about it this way, um, you know, during World War II, Battle of Stalingrad, etc., the majority of the fight actually came from shaping operations, uh, for instance, uh, Operation Uranus, um, which were designed to cut off the logistical supply lines of the German Wehrmacht uh, behind the city. So instead of attacking the city head-on, you basically cut it off from logistical supplies and reinforcements, etc. Let it wither on the vine, and then you can take it in a coup de grace. That is apparently what has happened, although there isn't a total encirclement. So there's a difference between an operational encirclement and a total encirclement, right? Or, well, 
It's a square rectangle situation. An operational encirclement can can demark, for instance, a circumstance in which the main lines of supply, communications, and reinforcement are functionally cut off. Now, total encirclement is also a type of operational encirclement, but what it means is literally, you know, there are counter countervailing fields of fire of men positioned totally encircled. Think of a medieval siege kind of situation. Um, that's kind of a watertight situation, and that's what happened in Solograd. Once, you know, Uranus completely and successfully, you know, under Zhukov, encircled the Germans inside of Stalingrad. Now, what's happened now in Bakhmut instead is basically the Russians have cut off two of the major, have actually occupied two of the major roadways into Bakhmut. And now you're thinking to yourself, well, what's the big deal of cutting off roads? Why can't they just go over land? So the issue with going over land is that, first of all, you have to take into account the fact that, you know, overland has its challenges. I mean, whether it's a wooded area or there's mud or whatever, it's difficult to quickly and fuel efficiently get to a place. And so basically, functionally, um, there are no avenues of approach which give significant reinforcements to a location. Now, um, the Russians and the Ukrainians have shown uh, the necessity still of an industrial backline or background uh, to perpetuating operations. So, for instance, every day Ukrainians are able have a budget of 6,000 uh, shells that they're allowed to expend in the course of operations against the Russians. And the Russians, instead, are able to respond with 60,000. Now, there's been a lot of talk in the West about precision munitions and the role of HIMARS, etc., that have to do with Ukraine. Now, I totally understand that, and there is a utility to these munitions. Um, you know, decapitation is a very effective and, uh, let's say, war-winning maneuver one might take. However, the only thing that counters precision is mass, and that's what the Russians specialize in. Now, yes, you read stories, for instance, of HIMARS strikes where the Ukrainians operating off of NATO intelligence can uh, kind of track where there is any specific, um, let's say, like, oh, there's this building that was an old bakery and there is a significantly higher level of transmissions from phones or radios coming from this specific building. This must be a command and control center, C2. Or it might be a place where we're, there are barracks of, you know, Wagner troops or whatever, station. This is what happens often, and surgical strikes like that usually take out 50 men or so. But here's the, here's the kicker, right? So... When you are able to have precision munitions, remember the economies of scales, uh, scale, excuse me, of precision munitions aren't the same yet. Um, you know, technological innovations are still slow uh, as far as making things cost efficient. It's not cost efficient to send, uh, you know, HIMAR rounds to the Ukraine. Um, I mean, for instance, every round 
of HIMARS with the precision munition computers, etc. Forget about the platform, but the missile itself is roughly half a million dollars, or it's 250,000 if you know we have ramped up production. It's around there. Now, the Russians don't have as many precision munitions outside of its true missile capabilities and its radar-guided um, hypersonic missiles, etc. But what they do have is a crap ton of 155, no, excuse me, 152. See, the Soviet patterns 152, um, the NATO patterns 155 um, munitions, which, you know, it's $20,000 a pop, probably cheaper in the, the Soviet Union and ex-Soviet states. And you can just saturate an entire area with numerous salvos and make it basically impossible for the operating force to make those strikes. But that has been relatively effective. And on top of everything else, let's see, you know, we see a lot of the, the different things that are happening and there are a lot of casualty ratings that are happening on both sides. A lot of sides um, allege, you know, an understatement of casualties for their side, an overstatement of casualties on the uh, the enemy side. But I think it's pretty accurate to say that this war has caused million casu- one million military casualties between the two of them. And casualties, again, it's not just killing people, it's maiming people beyond uh, military significance. Um, it's you know, prison, it's whatever it may be, and so there, there's a certain, like, note <laughs> under that valuation. But as far as KIA is concerned, killed in action, or killed of wounds, I think it's very possible to say that each side has lost at least 100,000 men. I don't think it's really that much of a far stretch. I know the Russians definitely are there. I am pretty sure, certain that the Ukrainians are at 150 right now. Um, the highest estimate, of course, comes from the Ministry of Defense of Russia, which uh, claims that there are 330,000 KIA Ukrainians. Um, I doubt that, um, but it doesn't matter. The point being is, as you can see, conventional warfare hasn't pivoted to this GWAT emphasis on surgical strikes and uh, satur like. Uh, how do you say this? It's surgical strikes and saturating the enemy with, with, you know, fires. A lot of it has to do with maneuver. Um, the arrow maneuver is not over. We saw the Ukrainians successfully use things like uh, operating, you know, tactics such as thunder runs, etc., to cut off and to quickly act on intelligence provided by NATO. Now, continuing on. The Russians, their mode of war is deep battle, right? And I've stated this before, but I think I have to revisit in the future. The Soviet doctrine of deep battle relatively means that not only do you have a line, which is what Westerners also have, but they have an emphasis on three echelons of defense, of three echelons of, of attack. And... It's not just the immediate front line, which is a scene of hostilities, but they also place partisans, um, you know, paramilitary assets and clandestine assets behind enemy lines and cause logistical uh, 
problems. And I don't just mean like paratroopers or something like that. I mean like, for instance, um, forward operating FSB and GRU individuals who are, you know, blowing up munition stockpiles uh, or even in other countries. Like, for instance, uh, Latvia is producing a, a ton of drones for the Ukrainians and mysteriously it turns on fire. Or in the United States, for instance, uh, there are a number of egg factories that have caught fire. Now, people say it's a mistake, but when it comes to politics, coincidences, there is no such thing as a coincidence, right? There's always some kind of malice or calculation behind it. Whether it were, you know, by an agent source, or if it were to happen, it can always be co-opted for political ends. Now, I'm not going to get into it too much, but it's important to note that conventional warfare still hasn't really fundamentally changed since 1945 um, between two conventional units or forces. So a lot of the time, especially during the Cold War, the only experience we have with conventional forces facing off um, basically is very sparse. I mean, South Africa and Namibia, the, the Civil War there and Angola. But a lot of it hinged on guerrilla warfare and insurgent warfare. And that's irregular. And there are not many wars from the top of my head which have had such a huge emphasis on the conventional force of arms. In fact, many people would continually write about how it's the end of conventional warfare and how it is forever going to be this kind of low-intensity conflict scenario. The Ukraine war has flipped that whole thing on its head, right? Now we can finally see how many innovations in the science of military warfare have happened, and effectively the bones are the same. We still emphasize the need for maneuver in the West, we still use infantrymen with guns in their hands. We still uh, focus on destroying the enemy with fires. So the majority of casualties on both sides are incurred by artillery and, you know, strikes. So airstrikes, etc. It's not, you know, Call of Duty warfare, you know, shooting each other with M16s. Although, of course, that does happen. But the I think it's uh, the... British, the London Military Institute of War estimated that the Ukrainian conflict, 85% of all casualties were incurred by artillery rounds or shells or munitions like that, not bullets. So, of course, that's a very interesting and important tidbit of information. But as you can see, there are a number of different things that are happening in the Ukrainian war that need to be parsed out and talked about, at least from a, you know, military science and technic perspective. And so I've chosen to take this transmission and dedicate it towards those ends. But before we break, have a stogie, and move on to the main emphasis, I wanted to just talk about some ancillary events that have happened. So Israel conducted strikes in Iran of very important drones that the Russians have been procuring and using in the Ukraine. 
Obviously, that's not unique. The Israelis have also sent a significant number or amount of support to the Ukraine. Now, on top of everything else, they apparently are becoming more and more belligerent in the conflict and taking a more substantial diplomatic support of the Ukraine. Again, that's interesting, not important, but the most concerning dragon in the room is China's, how do you say, pressure on the West. Many of us thought that giving sanctions to Russia and the threat of sanctions against China will basically cower them into submission. But I think that flies in the face, as we're seeing now, of the self-interest of the PRC. PRC understands that if it cucks its ally, Russia, what ends up happening is that it feeds itself to the woods, uh, excuse me, to the wolves. Um, And so it has no benefit of allying with the West. Its relationship to the West is parasitic until it has a diplomatic and political edge, right? And that is no longer the case. I mean, the United States has basically confronted the PRC with um, an ultimatum. And we're finding that that ultimatum is trying to be avoided by the PRC, but they are leaning on supporting Russia. They have supported Russia with some significant munitions um, and non-lethal support. Um, They have helped source artillery munitions from uh, their client state, uh, the DPRK, for their 152 pattern howitzer shells. Um, But the most important thing that they have done recently is put pressure on the West by making explicit claims that they will acquire Taiwan by 2027. Now that is interesting. It's interesting because what happens is it overextends the American empire, right? The global American empire, the gay, right? Why? Now, think about it this way. The West and Europe are so entirely focused on Ukraine. Uh, You know, the German army has been emptied of leopards and tanks. Uh, EU uh, pattern militaries have given up a lot of their munitions. For instance, in Germany... Uh, which has been completely looted by the Americans. There are only uh, there's only enough munition uh, ammunition for about an evening of combat, and the hardware from the British military has been depleted so far that they, they are no longer a tier one conventional force. They might be even tier two, if that. Now, that's a significant, not innovation, but a significant indictment, right? Because they have the West no longer is this industrial base. It no longer is what it was in the 50s and the 60s, right? And we have been trying to rekindle the military industrial complex's ability to domestically produce military hardware, right? And we have or the United States, the the gay has successfully revamped a small portion of that capability. But that's all hinged on, for instance, sourcing raw materials from hostile powers, such as the PRC. All our munitions and ships and, you know, basically things that, uh, for instance, uh, treads, tank treads, come from China. 
a number of different things that we rely on parts that are assembled either locally or in Mexico or in Japan or Taiwan, for instance, are very, like, very much in the control of our enemies. The supply chain is compromised. Um, you know, if you t if you read General Spalding's work, and I'll keep on harping on this, uh, stealth war. All our means of production are in the hands of the enemy, and we're finding that. Okay, we sanctioned Russia, right? Okay, great. So, what has Russia done? Why can't? Why hasn't it crumpled under economic pressure? Blah blah blah. And don't get me wrong, of course. The ruble has suffered inflation. People locally, I speak to people that like actually do live in that location, and of course life has gotten hard. However, they have all the material goods, and that's something the West doesn't understand. Is that Westerners think that just because your GDP big number go down, that somehow, well, okay, you lost. No, it, you don't lose. You don't lose because the significance is not the same. Uh, Russians are local producers of 90% of the world's potash, which is fertilizer. The Russians are producers of food. They're a huge bread basket. Russians are producers uh, producers of their munitions, of huge you know stockpiles of arms, not just from the Soviet Union, but also capabilities they have developed in the subsequent fall. And on top of that, they have significant consumer good production that makes them virtually independent of the West. Of course, there are many key assets that they're lacking that are basically under duress. And it's not a cakewalk. It's not, I'm not saying that their hair is not getting mussed up, but I am saying that the economies of force have basically tilted in the favor of Russians because for every, you know, let's say artillery shell we expend, what happens is, you know, it, it costs the West more practically, right? You know, the West has a you know, ton of money, but what does that money mean if there is no physical thing to buy? If there is no industrial plant to source it from? So what we're seeing now is that all of the American allied forces are being depleted of significant stores from the, the Cold War era, and they have no means of reproducing those stockpiles that it once had those means. So, for instance, the United States, again, had the industrial capacity to completely, you know, restore and still supply these munitions to any proxy power as it did it during the Cold War. Now, that's going away. Interesting, right? And so, Russia doesn't have that I issue, China doesn't have that issue, all of them are self-sufficient, all of them have been suffering from a financial perspective because of sanctions and, you know, subterfuge, etc., but they have everything they need, which we don't, right? So, the only thing that the West has is food production correct? But we don't have, for instance, I mean, aside from that, we, we don't have locally produced consumer goods or exquisite, uh, you know, goods such as chips. That's why the cost for cars have skyrocketed so much. Now, what China has done is put pressure on Taiwan and forced us to split gay forces between 
the Pacific, and the European theater. The United States Navy is woefully unprepared. The ships of the surface, the first, the surface vessels are woefully under-trained, under-repaired, um, outdated. Um, the premier force of the United States Navy, which is the submarine force, is good to go. It is ready for combat. However, there are only so many Virginia-class submarines that can be, uh, you know, employed in combat. And the the Chinese, the PRC, actually has superior um, ballistic missile technology and anti-ship warfare technology because it's the emphasis of their research and it's superior to the United States, hypersonic missiles, etc. It's no big deal, but as time goes on, basically what that does is it bleeds assets away from supporting Ukrainians. So instead of having one direction, it has to worry about two fronts with a significant force. But I think I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit too much. I've spoken before in the war room with uh, War Chief about Peter Zion and his more propagandistic perceptions of world conflict. But I think I'm going to try and balance his view out with some very objective terms. And like I said, I don't have a dog in this fight, so I think I'm specially qualified to give a more unbiased approach and analysis of things that are happening, possibilities that will happen. But with the aid of the British Military Institute, uh, with a report such as the... Let me let me say here. It's this is called Rusi.org. We'll go ahead and talk about all these circumstances that have been innovative and also stayed the same. Now, this is General Lance. This is Sergeant Barnes, and this is Lance's Legion.
Alright legionaries, settle down, settle down. Let's get into the meat and potatoes here of the modern conventional warfare and analysis thus far of the Ukrainian operation. Now, <clears throat> I will be referring to this document, which I'll have hyperlinked into the description, but it is from the Royal, excuse me, let me think about this, ah, Royal United Service Institute. I don't know why it's called that, but it's a terrible name, but effectively, it's a British military think tank, um, and it does a lot of, how do you say, review on warfare in general. It is analogous to something similar to uh, CSIS or war colleges that are located here in the United States. Now, they wrote this massive 60-page review in every aspect of the Ukrainian war. And my, I have chosen to pick apart their major commentary about it to give you an idea of what modern conventional warfare is like. If you read about war, especially in the Second World War, which is a favorite, um, there are a lot of analogs and there are a lot of changes and um, a lot of expectations and a lot of crests which are fallen. Now, I know that sounds like really verbose and crazy, so I'm just going to get into it without further ado. Here, we're going to talk about Russian planning. So, before you do an operation, you plan, and uh, you have set, you know, expectations. You have set, uh, you know, let's say, uh, what you predict the enemy is going to be. You war game it out, all this kind of good stuff. And so, I'm going to get back into that um, without keeping it too long. Now, here we go. Pop, pop, pop. Ah, there we go. So as I was saying, there are four key assumptions from the Russian side which were incredibly important, right? And uh, before going in, they, they obviously were doing almost 10 to 12 years of military and, and human intelligence gathering and, you know, cyber attacks. It's 5G warfare the whole time. So there was a, a, a spectrum of violence already occurring that gave the high command some kind of information to work off of. Now, there are four key things that they expected, the Russian invasion, and I'll read from here the list. One, speed was critical to success to render the response of the international community irrelevant. Two, the removal of Ukraine's leaders will remove the barrier for pro-Russian Ukrainians to vocalize support for the occupation. 3. Control of heating, electricity, and finance would be an effective means of controlling the apathetic majority of the Ukrainian population. 4. The Russian military could defeat the Ukrainian military on the battlefield. So, what does this mean? The assumptions, these assumptions form the foundation for the logic of operational planning. So, effectively, these are the parameters of any war plans that they're trying to devise. Um, now, a lot of these are pretty, pretty much a reach. I think a, a number of these were true. For instance, speed, obviously, to render the international community relevant. Uh, as we saw, the Russians got bogged down 
and the international community has significantly uh, risen to the occasion with munitions and nonviolent support, including intelligence and training. Second, the removal of Ukrainian leaders removed the barrier for pro-Russian Ukrainians to vocalize support for the occupation. Um, yes, decapitation works. Yes, uh, this would have worked, and it was important. So remember when that initial incursion into Kiev, the utility of that was to decapitate the government, to arrest or liquidate uh, key pro-Ukrainian figures, or rather pro-Western figures. Uh, controlling heating and electricity finance had effective means of controlling the apathetic majority of the Ukrainian population. I... This would have worked. This would have been important if you still had it. Now, not without getting too much into the rabbit hole here, but people don't realize that torturing someone, the most effective way to torture someone is not to torture them, but to threaten them. And basically give the person the threat of torture to make them talk or make them cooperate. In this case, for instance, in Russia, Russia attacking the heating, the electricity, the finance does not do what they want. What would have worked was the threat of having done so. But now that the Ukrainians have lost heating, electricity, and finance, or a lot of the means towards it, they don't care as much because the cost has already been incurred. It's something called sunk costs, right? Now, uh, their psychology is now, well, it changes nothing. You know, 50% of my infrastructure is destroyed. It doesn't mean anything. So that's a faulty key assumption. And four, the Russian military could defeat the Ukrainian military in the battlefield. Obviously, this is something that did not pan out. Now, initially their plan, military strategy, rested on four points. To degrade Ukraine's ability to defend itself by destroying its air, maritime, and air defense forces. So basically cripple it. This is what we did in Iraq. We crippled it by destroying its navy, um, its air forces, and, its, and bombarded key infrastructure for that kind of support uh, prior to the land invasion. Number two defeat Ukrainian ground forces by fixing them in Donbass. Now, I think this is a significant tell. It is pretty obvious that Bakhmut and other different conflicts which have been taking place in Donbass um, have fixed the majority of the Ukrainian forces down into the southeast of the Ukrainian territory. But that is not the case. So, that is the case, and a lot of the mechanized equipment um, which has been dedicated to that southern front has been ground up and destroyed. Now, um, the Belarusians have amassed on the northern border, and the majority of the experienced and well-trained forces and motivated well-trained forces of the Ukraine are still fixed, right, stuck, in fighting the Russians on the Donbass. Key point three, diffuse Ukraine's will and capacity to resist by eliminating Ukraine's political and military leadership and occupying critical centers of political and economic power. This has been happening a lot. There have been a lot of surgical strikes on key 
leadership locations. Obviously, Zelensky's been kept out of the brush, but um, a lot of the banderists and small key figures like local mayors and stuff have been similarly liquidated, either being KIA or being um, arrested by clandestine forces. Now, moving on, deceive the Ukrainian government as to the time, location, scope, and scale of Russia's invasion. Russia's invasion. And so, yeah, all right, let's go back to the Soviet doctrine, right? The Soviet doctrine of Maskarovka, and which literally means masking. And then the second thing is uh, reflex uh, strategy, right? So to, to get your enemy to do the thing by reflex, by doing something that puts them in a disadvantageous position. Now, that's what the Russians have successfully done, I believe, to a certain degree. Obviously, some part of their plan hasn't survived, um, but effectively made Ukraine dig in in the Donbass and get absolutely annihilated uh, for their ability to have a mechanized core of men. And now they're having manpower drawn away um, to the north and to the east for there are Russian cores that are amassing on those locations and the possibility of a hostile Belarusia invading from the north. The likelihood of which is low, but the threat is significant enough that the Ukrainians have actually created a uh, layer of concrete bunkers and fighting positions around Kiev and the Pripyat Marshes area. Um, hostilities have been running high, and the readiness of Belarusian forces has increased tremendously. Um, after two mobilizations in Russia, the manpower available to Russians to fight this war has increased as well. And the time during winter, so this started in November, let's say, um, to train an entire corps of men uh, to plug up and reinforce under-reinforced brigades, etc., um, now are being brought up to strength for a winter offensive, and Bahmut is par part of this situation. Now, I'm not going to get too much into it, uh, but as you can see, this is the planning operation. Before, so, before the chips were down, before any man crossed the line of departure, these were the key assumptions of the plan and the plan itself, which hinged on these four points. Um, now, as you saw, the war began with shock and awe strikes, but it really was tempered down, and it seems as though, you know, as you, you saw the attacks from Belarusia into Kiev, um, trying to liquidate civil authorities, uh, GRU teams capturing government buildings, um, power stations, uh, inundating airfields with strikes, and uh, capturing them which is what the VDV insertion was about, uh, banks, etc. All this kind of stuff, <clears throat> as well as tactical group O uh, to encircle Kiev. Um, Z was commanded to sweep the south um, to Donetsk, capture Mariupol, which they did, pincer from above Kharkov and up from Crimea to encircle the UAF concentrated in Donetsk. So right now that didn't happen, obviously, um, and the amphibious groups take Odessa with Black Sea Fleet. Now, that wasn't even attempted yet because things went so sour in the east. 
um, including the fact that Ukrainians were divided into four categories, basically. Um, so, when the Russians were assessing, right, they were assessing what um, key figures should be killed, liquidated, coerced, etc. There are four categories, right? Those that need to be liquidated outright, people like Zelensky and hardliners, hard NATO, you know, hardliners, uh, people that can be suppressed. Um, suppressed being that they are, they are, how do you say, opportunistically supporting the Kiev regime. Three, neutrals, which is the vast majority of people, and there are different attitudes towards this, but neutrals really couldn't care one way or another. They're basically human cattle. Um, and the way you can coerce them is just by being the guy in power. And they figured that that's what formed the majority of the Ukrainian population and thus were able to do that. Number four, collaborators. Obviously there are a huge number of pro-Russian collaborators, even all the way as far as Lvov and in Odessa. Um, I mean, Ukraine is basically Russia. There has been a lot of talk about how it's its own ethnic group and blah blah blah, but 70% um, of Ukrainians only speak Russian. I mean, like, it's, it's a, it's a made-up ethnicity. It's, it's like, I don't know, like, it, it's, it's kind of like Esperanto, you know, in a way. So you have to understand that the majority of people just don't give a fuck. Like, they don't care about the conflict in general. I mean, until recently, of course, or at least until they invaded. Um, and let's see here. Oh, so the FSB and the VDV were conducted to kill capture missions in this initial stage of the invasion. Um, and as you can see, this is part of deep order battle, right? Deep battle is going way behind enemy lines and taking out key points and nodes of leadership and infrastructure. Um, this would continue on, but I just wanted to give you that idea of what happened. Um, as far as from the Russian side. There are a lot of talk about, you know, oh, Russia's failing in a three-day war and all this kind of stuff, but, like, no one talks about the foundations and the contingencies that they have laid out beforehand. But now let's talk about the Ukraine's planning and preparation. This happened between 2014 and 2022, and basically the UAF has been in a constant low-intensity conflict since about 2014. Uh, officers have had a large chance to uh, observe, plan on Russian positions, as well as Russians way, Russian ways of war. Um, a lot of the officer corps has combat experience and active duty experience, which is critical. Several professional um, brigades with highly experienced spec op regiments, uh, which are very professional. Uh, so there are very there are a lot of tier one assets, conventional assets, at the disposal of the Ukrainians, trained by NATO and American forces. Um, and so this capability is significant. It's trained in the Western pattern. They're highly motivated, highly experienced, etc. Now we're moving down. And obviously you have the ter territorial defense forces formed a part-time reserve as combat vets. National Guard is like the gendarme. 
these forces obviously are motivated to a certain extent, but they have a lower level of qualification of, of uh, quality, right? So uh, these individuals, I mean, it's just like in the, the, the American military. You have the reserves and the National Guard. They get the job done, but they're, they're meant to hold the line. They're meant not to make attacks, but as position occupiers of stabilizing the line, uh, preventing attacks from succeeding or slowing down the enemy, or uh, putting on pressure along the line as the piercing group attacks, the mechanized group attacks, which is the tier one asset, right? Um, now, there's been improvement of support capabilities. Um, the artillery, of course, has improved tremendously. The Americans have provided them with some high-tech sighting and navigational services and intel services which have made precision strikes possible and counter-battery strikes possible on a scale that wasn't there prior, right? Now let's see here. 90% of casualties, as I said earlier, are incurred by artillery, so it's probably the most important part of this entire war um, since the beginning of the invasion has been this case. Now, armored units and use of tanks as indir indirect fire, supporting fire, um, is kind of been an innovation of this war, uh, where like, you know, T-80 and T-90, their direct fire capabilities are what they're used for, either in infantry support capacity or anti-tank capacity. However, um, because of a certain kind of uh, rigging uh, or innovation, they have been able to use tank cannons for long-distance indirect fire. Now, moving on, um, obviously they have some reserve units for counterattacks and basically have largely adopted the NATO pattern maneuver warfare doctrine. Obviously, there's a huge anti-tank emphasis and ATGM capabilities, javelins, and coronets, and domestically produced coronets. Uh, Anti-air also is one of those uh, important aspects. Their man pads are widely distributed amongst uh, units of the line, making it impossible for, for instance, uh, casts on the Russian side or helicopters, which are forming in the cast role, to effectively fight in a combined arms manner with uh, ground forces. Uh, this is obviously courtesy of the United States. Now continuing on, modernized aerospace forces systems still overmatched. So obviously Ukraine is a smaller country, man. And the most exquisite aspect of a country is usually its air forces and aeronautic capabilities. Um, the number of aircraft airframes in the uh, possession of the Ukrainians is really, let's say, it, it's a low quantity. And that low quantity has been dwindled significantly since the initial strikes of the invasion and subsequent um, anti-aircraft capabilities of the Russians as well as air-to-air um, -air engagements. Um, you know, obviously the electronics have been significantly improved with good Israeli tech. Um, and helped significantly with downing Russian fighters, uh, which are themselves a little bit antiquated and behind the line, notwithstanding the SU-57 and all that kind of stuff, but still. 
Now, here we do, we're going to talk about game day, right? We just talked about the preparation before this. Here's the game day of the operation. Invasion day, game day, awesome sauce. Bada bing, bada boom. You know what I mean? And if you just give me a second here, I'm going to get to page 24 of this review and read you a section of what I thought was a kind of interesting talking point about the, uh, how do you say, assessments and dispositions. So without further ado, uh, let's see here. Having given an overview of the capabilities of the UAF in some critical areas prior to the invasion, it becomes possible to properly outline the resources available and thus prioritization decisions that underpinned their dispositions prior to 24 February. The general staff of the UAF had conducted exercise, extensive exercises in war games to assess how to orchestrate the defense of the country against a wide range of contingencies. Despite having identified methods for defending all relevant axes, however, the limited number of available units without full mobilization meant that the weighted units had to be driven by an assessment of enemy intent. Again, like I said, Russia Maskarovka basically obfuscating what the UAF needed to do. It is also important to emphasize that the economic impact of full mobilization made this very difficult for the Ukrainian government in the face of a sustained threat that could delay major attacks for a long time. Now, of course, put this in perspective, the economy is always something you have to focus on. Your ability not just to pay men to fight, um, but also the ability to pay for munitions, pay for um, this, that, and the other thing uh, towards the war effort is a significant strain. Already, the Ukrainian government is, by, you know, assessing its time against the Russians. It's already on the ropes on a certain, how do you say, the, the wick only runs so long. Does that make sense? And so, already, they have to work on a shoestring budget, right? Now, continuing on, uh, you know, the first day of the attack has an emphasis on destroying the top military leadership, as I keep on telling you, and if you saw in the beginning of the war, there were those strikes against uh, the key, like basically the equivalent of the Pentagon in the Ukraine, and other key barracks. Now, there are some issues with the Russians failing to identify and discern dummy emplacements and targets. So what the Ukrainians did is make a shit ton of these like emplacements and buildings and hollowed out buildings and so what the Russians had to do was nail all of them. And of course they don't have infinite resources either and what they were forced to do is kill some and not others. Now moving on UF, UAF was quick to displace and help its survivability. So, ahead of time, the um, the NATO forces were able to give in, uh, you know signals, intelligence uh, dispositions, and human intelligence dispositions of the ger Russian general staff, uh, knowing where they're going to strike a little bit ahead of time. And so there were a way there were ways to mitigate losses ahead of time, and to force those Ukrainian forces to displace before those caliber rounds came came down range. Now, game day again, air assault in Kiev and other key locations, unsuccessful to be effective and uh, due to the air superiority or air contention of the UAF and inadequate artillery and, mecha and mechanized counters to UAF defenses. 
Russian Discord nation. Obviously, at first, within the first 24 hours, there was so much chaos. The units weren't motivated, they didn't know what the hell was going on, and they were only given orders to march and the plans to march 24 hours behind. So imagine you are a conscript in the Russian military, you are doing your service um, as part of the deal, you train, blah blah blah, oh you're going to Belarusia for a training, boom, day before, oh no, we're attacking and it's like a no-shit operation. That is very disorienting and very concerning for it for the average man and doesn't make him a good fighter. Now, continuing on, there are lack of preparation supplies due to this um, low readiness caused by low amounts of time to get ready for attacks. Um, and there was a emphasis that was a demonstration of force and spec ops were doing the dirty hard work of liquidation. So, <clears throat> The Russians, because they're a bunch of boomers in the command, were suffering from a worldwide epidemic of boomers, okay? It's not just the United States, it's the Russians too. So Putin is a boomer, and so are his general staff, like Shoigu and stuff. And so they thought going into the Ukraine was just going to be a walk. They thought that it was going to roll over like they did in 2014, 2012, or I think it was 2011. No, 2014 in Crimea. And obviously, it did not happen. That it did not happen, and it wasn't a show of force. They they hoped that it would provide the Kiev government with a fait accompli and in a kind of coup de gras situation. Something similar would be like America invading Panama, right? Uh, when we got there, we kind of annihilated a key group of combatants that were motivated enough to fight, but at the end of the day, we just pretty much just rolled up and, and were like, no, give us Noriega, right? So that's what they were expecting. And things went terribly, terribly wrong, as you probably know. And as I'm not going to go through all the crazy, intricate details of this attack. You guys know how the beginning of the war happened. It was a shit show. Um... Russian forces were outnumbered, they were outprepared, outmotivated, outfought, and they had no initiative. And so, at the end of the day, along all these axes, we see a significant edge on the Ukrainian side. However, as time goes on, fronts solidify, as you remember, and ultimately, by day 39 or whatever, Russian army tactics have evolved. No longer are they using helicopters and Su-25s without significant anti-air capabilities or suppressing anti-air capabilities of the UAF. You know, they're changing different circumstances. They're using hypersonic missiles with great success on deep targets in Lvov and other places, which are impossible to, to first of all, track on a radar, and two, um, to effectively shoot down. Hypersonic missiles are moving so fast, which is what made NATO general staff shit a brick when it happened, is because not even with um, the Patriot missile battery and the Patriot missile radar capabilities were they able to shoot it down. That's a significant threat. It's a threat demonstration not just to the Ukrainians, but to the rest of the world. And if the Russians were capable of using this hypersonic missile, 
the people that are the best at hypersonic missiles or ballistic missile technology, the PRC, um, definitely have this capability and will use it to crazy effect against the United States 7th Fleet Navy in the Pacific. So that's actually one of, probably the, one of the most important things um, that happen, right? And, um, you know, people start stabilizing. Russians start gathering the will to fight. You know, their buddies are dying. Uh, they understand the circumstances of the war. The realities of hardship are setting in. And that's effectively what happened at by a month in. But already, the assaults on Kiev has failed within a week. The assaults from the east has failed. And largely, the only operating forces that were having any success were in the south. If you remember the case Kursan, um attack across the Denipur, was actually incredibly successful at, at this moment in time. Now, let's see here. This was about the time the UAF was actually switching its own tactics. Instead of focusing on, on destroying the masses of, you know, Russian forces that happened. They just have so many numbers, it's crazy. They focus on killing the logistical nodes because Russians are terrible at logistics and they focus on killing and destroying warehouses deep in Russia and all along the line, the rail line um, in the Donbass. And this, infect this, this had a crazy effect to the point where uh, tanks and the Russian forces were being abandoned wholesale wholesale. That's why you see all those uh, videos of tractors tracking off all those little tanks and stuff like that. That's because they ran out of fuel. Fuel due to the breakdown of logistics. Now, as you say, amateurs talk about tactics and masters talk about logistics. This was actually a pretty masterful stroke because what it did is helped all those military assets for the Russians wither on the vine and make them ripe to be plucked by the UAF. Obviously, there are some key takeaways. Here in this uh, initial set of the invasion, we understand um, that Russians have a vulnerability which uh, number along a number of axes, right? They rely on conscript services. They rely on unmotivated fighters. They rely on mass. They rely on masses of fires as well. They rely on those kind of things which fo make them very logistically vulnerable. So their center of gravity is mass, however their, their critical vulnerability is logistics. Next, uh, the key takeaway is fratricide. On both sides there were huge amounts of fratricide, especially when uh, the lines weren't stabilized and it was incredibly difficult to know who was where and why. Uh, three, reinforcing failure, again logistical. And uh, the fourth takeaway, which is the most important takeaway in modern warfare, is the importance of hampering the initiative. Um, so, or rather, encouraging the initiative. A lot of the time in the beginning of the invasion, Russian forces failed because they didn't have leadership or a leadership style which encouraged initiative to think practically and understand the situation as it's happening. Okay, so what's an analogous situation that caused detrimental effects to have been incurred upon themselves? 
in another war. So World War II, the battle for France. Remember how Rommel went through the Ardennes and he attacked towards Paris, put the enemy on two branches, so to, so to speak, and basically wheeled around, took Paris, and encircled forces in Dun Dunkirk? Well, Charles de Gaulle, who was a tank battalion commander, uh, was there waiting in Belgium for the order to counterattack. And in a critical moment of a few days, if the high command had been able to gather their intelligence and issue orders effectively, what would have happened is a significant counterblow could have tipped the war and effectively given the French regime a month or two more before they succumbed to German forces. Now, that wasn't the case. Now, why? Well, because communications were cut off between the Central Command and the command on the ground, right? The operational command. Now, okay, that's fine. They already had the commander's intent, right? That's an innovation of the Second World War, is commander's intent. If you get cut off, or something happens to the plan where you can't communicate with higher, well, you got the, the understanding of what you want to accomplish in that mission, and you're given the parameters and the latitude, right, to make that mission effective. To, to okay, this plan didn't work. I can't communicate with my higher command. I'm going to innovate and take the initiative and try to accomplish these ends, the commander's intent, towards my, how do you say, in my own orchestration. Um, and so that's what Rommel and the German Wehrmacht was operating on. They, they didn't need to communicate with each other. There was a lot of authority on lower level units to take the actions they deemed necessary to take and fight the enemy according to the lines of commander's intent. Which is why Rommel, even though uh, he was given explicit orders to go only so far, he saw that the situation on the ground had fortuitous ends. That if he pressed the advantage, if he took more than he was given orders to take instead of just holding the line, he could have dealt a more striking blow than had already been envisaged. So that's initiative, right? It, it, the ability to have initiative. Um, this is a World War II thing, and that's the issue with the Soviet Union, is it, it deprived lower-level commanders of initiative, of the latitude and freedom to act on the initiative of orders, and which is why um, the Russians are so um, centralized and so authority-heavy. Right, they're they're high heavy on stuff. Like for instance, people in the high command were given detailed instructions to every single battalion tactical group in the initial stages of that invasion. That's not how you do it. In the West, we know how to fight, and the way you fight is by giving people the trust and the lower level leaders the ability to do as much as they can and assess the situation they're in, and to go along with the plan if they can. If, they, if it's fortuitous, and if it's not, to maneuver, re-attack, and then reassess the situation. So, again, this is World War II repackaged. But here are the new modern war innovations that I thought were kind of incredibly interesting, and ahead of time, people thought they were going to make more of an impact, but they didn't. So without further ado, Obviously, modern warfare 
you have no sanctuary. There is no rear operating base. Um, on the Eastern Front of the Second World War, of course you suffer from air raids, of course you suffered from this or that, maybe partisan groups, etc. However, it wasn't to the extent that it is today. Today, you can be texting on your phone if you're Zelensky and Lavov in some random house and get annihilated by, you know, a Satan 2 missile. Okay? There, there is no hiding. There is no back logistics. A number of uh, Western munitions and arms shipments from Poland into the Ukraine have been intercepted at the border, way behind the front line, due to the fact that, you know, satellites and and uh, significant uh, signals intelligence capabilities have been innovated since uh, the Second World War. Again, modern war is far more ammo-intensive than the Second World War. Um, there was a saying in Vietnam that all the bombs of World War II were dropped on North Vietnam in the course of a month. That was a statement of the time. Now, if you can translate that to modernity, to now, you can understand how much that expenditure in ammunition has accelerated and increased in volume. The Russians ran out of ammunition locally within, I think it was like four or five days, which is a significant amount of time. Um, but the Ukrainians ran out of 152 ammunition for their Soviet pattern artillery rounds within a week. The whole nation gone. That's it. No stockpiles. That's it. And they had hundreds of thousands of rounds. I mean, it wasn't a joke. It was a significant stockpile. If you remember, at the fall of the Soviet Union, the Ukraine and other Soviet states were foregrounds of arms deposits for the attack on, you know, Warsaw Pact attack on NATO forces. So they still had all those legacy pieces there, and somehow they already ran through it. So it was super ammunition intensive. Uh, UAV systems, so UAS is what it's called, right? Unmanned aerial systems. Um, we thought that they were going to play a larger role. They played a huge role in counterinsurgency. Uh, Reapers and drones and all this kind of stuff have played a massive role in Syria. They have played a massive role in the Azerbaijan and Armenia war. And they've played massive roles everywhere. However, here's the deal. Is that in a conventional force with a, a raid against a conventional force that has significant anti-air capabilities, such as the Russians, who emphasize anti-air, uh, they're able to negate that um, how do you say, potential. So if you're thinking you can go to war and enjoy the same kind of patrolling, how do you say, capabilities of a Reaper, of having an MQ-9 in the air and giving you, you know, in real time uh, intelligence about the dispositions of enemy forces and locations. Because remember, you're on the ground, man, and you're fighting these people. There's a huge haze that comes down. It's fog of war. You don't know where the fuck people are. And the way that men are dispersed nowadays in fighting formation, even in a skirmisher line, um, it's difficult to communicate and have eyes on as to where friendly forces are arrayed, what has happened, and where enemy forces are arrayed. The MQ-9 and UAV systems were an innovation to help 
specifically in cases like Mogadishu and America's experience in Somalia, to give in real time locational intelligence of enemy disposition and forces and what they're doing, etc. Right? And so uh, there is actually this incredible statistic that talked about UAS suffering uh, more than 95% casualty rate per mission. So what that means is, you know, our Reaper, the Bakhtar, 70, whatever, those heavy, you know, unguided, you know, aerial vehicles, every time, mostly every time they go on a mission, they're shot down. And that's a significant issue, right? Because they're all super expensive. They're all effective and all that kind of stuff. But as you go on in time, they're all going to get shot down. The storage rate for Ukrainian UAS is almost completely depleted, and they only deploy it now at this time of the war in significant locations, in significant times, in like criti critical directions, because they know that it's going to get shot down. Same thing with uh, the Russians, but the Russians have leaned on um, basically this thing called loitering munitions. Loitering munitions have proved to be the poor man's cruise missile and incredibly effective. And I think that's something America is actually getting into now with Lancet drones, etc. But these things are super cheap and they're relatively sophisticated enough to evade basic AA and they're effective enough to attack emplacement. So what ends up happening is you know, think about it this way. The Russians send a whole volley, a hundred Shahed-136 drones uh, to attack a number of different uh, positions in the uh, Ukrainian territory. Already, AA lines up. It lights up the radar, gives away the position to the enemy, and you know what happens immediately after that? The Russians send a second volley. They attack that UAS position, that AA position. So what it happens is operationally in a region, it nullifies AA. And then their tactic is to go in with CAS, with helicopters, with uh, your traditional airframes, and to help precision strike enemy emplacements um, within a location. As you can already tell, that's heavy on ammunition and stuff, but think about it this way. Uh, let's see. So a Patriot missile battery, I think it costs roughly $5 million. You know how much, how much a Shahed-136 drone costs? 100000 100000 And so even if you fire a volley of these things, right, and you spend a million dollars on a volley, okay, it's sick. Then you attack and you find these locations of these different AA batteries, right, and you nullify them, $100,000 compared to a $5 million battery, which has exquisite technology that requires manpower that is trained for months uh, to to man. For instance, the Patriot missile battery, they had Ukrainians that went to Oklahoma to learn from the Army or Air Force Command uh, basically how to effectively operate these platforms. And it takes months. It took them, I think it's like six months. It's really intensive I don't know, like a training session to go through, right? And, uh, you know, if this gets wiped out, not only are you defeating a platform that is co so cost-ineffective, right, you're killing the manners of that specific platform and making it impossible 
even if they're given that platform again to effectively operate it. So, there you go. That's something that's very interesting about this war, is that it places, again, a, a, a focus on logistical firepower. A focus on uh, basically being able to get as many men to the front with as much ammunition as possible and attacking as much as possible. In effect, nothing has changed. A lot of things have changed, but stayed the same. I'm not going to get too much into more detail, um, but the conclusion is this. Um, in parallel to all these conventional capabilities and circumstances that we find ourselves into, the added generation warfare, fifth generation warfare, the internet playing such a dramatic role in, you know, how do you say it? A dramatic role in shaping propaganda, shaping the public conscious. The reason why the Russians weren't able to show a force and rely on a neutral population is because the United States is so effective at employing social engineering, quote-unquote psyops, to buttress their side and to make a motivated force to defeat the Russians, to hate Russians, etc. Fifth generation warfare is becoming the centerpiece of political warfare. So the reason why people hate you shitposting on the internet is because effectively that is that is waging war. And it's more effective than bombs and bullets. Persuading people, doctrinating people, is a weapon of war and something that has been weaponized over the internet. Which is why they call about misinformation, disinformation, which is basically all the information that is against their interests, they call it mis- or disinformation, right? But we all know it's the opposite. It's just really anything that puts gay on the back heel is called disinformation, misinformation. So it is important that you understand these aspects, okay? Which is why I always get irritated when people on the internet are like, oh, you're, you're a you know, uh, cyber warrior, whatever the hell, like, yes, yes, it is effective. Yes, that does help. Because remember, war isn't about the techniques. It's not about the mechanism. Westerners make this mistake, and this is why we lose. <laughs> we think it's about the bomb or the, the tactic they use, like it's a football play. It doesn't matter. Who cares? The Vietnamese lost every freaking battle that we had against, and we still lost that war. Why? It's because they were fighting the objectives that are important. The people's minds. Capturing their allegiance. That's what you need to be going for. That's what political... Uh, how do you say this? The, the political crux rests on, right? War is just politics. How do you gain political influence? By influencing people. Coercion is an influence, of course. But in the era of against annihilation... Force is not enough. So, like, we can't go out there and kill everyone, right? Not anymore ever since World War II because people have gotten lame. So what do you do now? Well, you brainwash them. It is effective. It's important. That's why when you troll people and you make posts on the Internet, even if you're a nobody and you echo points which help you, which you're effective and helping against, even if you shitpost, that is literally doing more than a day of Shahed 136 drones. 
It is doing more than bullets and band-aids and all that kind of stuff. Because at the end of the day, what you're doing is attacking the very essence of what a political war is about. And it's about winning the sympathies of friendlies or neutrals and nullifying the influence of your enemy on the neutrals, right? And I say neutrals because whatever, but here's another red pill for you. The mass of humanity is a bovine horde of cows. And if you have ever herded cows like I have, sometimes you got to hit them and lasso them and basically manhandle them and, you know, cast them away. And so what war is today is two shepherds fighting over a flock by guiding the flock one way or another towards their ranch or the other ranch. And so you have to think about it that way. How to basically bully side or influence, induce neutrals, the cows, into your whatever the fuck, manger, you know it's called. Right? You can't you can't just focus on the stick, the bullet, the, all this kind of stuff. And it's really hard to explain this to a Westerner because in the West, we ha especially I remember my time in the military, trying to explain to them that politics isn't like it's it's like they have a, they're too autistic to understand that these crystallizations of politics or human dynamics, for instance, like politics only happens when it's at Capitol Hill or at the town hall. That's politics. That's how stupid they are. That's how inc incredibly inane they are, and that's why they're so open to being co-opted by internet and by the the different forms of information that are presented to us that socially engineer us. Politics happens every day in every action that you take, where you buy your food from, where you talk to your friends, whether or not you shit post on your uncle's stupid uh, shit lib post, whether you're counter signaling them, where you demoralize the enemy, you, you know, like whatever. Every time you protest uh, against a communist uh, professor, that is that is political. Everything is political. And you can win the you can win a war without firing around. And that's something people have to understand, man. At the end of the day, I want to conclude that yes, conventional capabilities are important. At the end of the day, it gives you an edge on influencing people. It denies the enemy the ability to place institutions and leadership which control the bovine masses, the cows, right? But at the end of the day, that's only a prerequisite. The main thing is a person's mind. The main thing is winning hearts and minds, as you keep on saying, but they terribly executed it. Nobody wants to be gay. Nobody wants to be weird. Okay, like, that's something people would have to understand. <sighs> but rant over. Me and Sergeant Barnes, we're just gonna kick back, relax. Have some stogies. And I'll go ahead and catch up with you guys at a later time. This is Lance's Legion, incredibly frustrated, signing off.